Welcome to The Bazaar. God, it's Friday. I don't know about you, but I live for Fridays almost as much as I live for Sundays when I just sleep in and want to stay in my pajamas all day. Thank you for stopping by the bazaar. I'm your host, Alicia Grek. This is a podcast about the weird, the unsolvable, the creepy, and sometimes the absolute terrifying. Episodes of the bazaar come out every Friday, so turn on those notifications, buckle in. If you haven't listened to our older episodes, do so. Binge the podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please take a moment to rate and review The Bazaar. I want to keep delivering episodes of this podcast to you and rally together our listeners. The more listens and reviews that we have, the better that we can do for you. I'm trying to get us at the top of the charts, and I want to start a community of people who are just as bizarre as me. Today, we're covering part two of Charles Manson, if you were confused by the episode title. (laughs) Last week, we talked about Charles Manson's early life. So if you haven't listened to part one from last week, go back and do so now. This week, we're going to be covering the Manson family. This little mini-series of the Bazaar was majorly inspired by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I feel like this is old news to say by now, but if you haven't seen it, you really need to. This is your content warning. The Bazaar contains mature subject matter that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Information for today's episode comes from Wikipedia, The Independent, Rolling Stone, and Biography.com. Let's set the scene. It's San Francisco, the peak of the hippie movement in 1967. Charles Manson is freshly released out of prison and living in Berkeley, California. During this time, he and about 18 other women all lived together in Mary Brunner's house. Mary Brenner was a 23-year-old graduate student of the University of Wisconsin and working as a library assistant in Berkeley. Manson started off as a guru during the infamous Summer of Love in San Francisco. We are right at the stage before a supervillain becomes a supervillain. But before we give him any credit for any of his evil bullshit, you should know that Charles Manson and his whole plan wasn't all that original. He actually stole his entire manifesto from the process church of the final judgment. So, there's that. If you want to Google them, they're actually really interesting, and by interesting, I mean creepy. He believed that Satan would make up with Jesus and come together to judge everybody at the end of days. Based on these thoughts, during the Summer of Love, Manson had his first group of followers. Now, he didn't really start off with the whole Satan and Jesus coming back together and growing it out situation. He grew on them in a foundation of free love, freedom, and wandering the deserts as happy, happy hippies. Manson taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians. The Romans? Well, those were the establishment. It's important to remember that during this time, everybody was experimenting with different things, and so they were more likely to believe in this idea. Before the end of the summer, Manson had nine followers. 
In classic hippie style, they all piled into an old school bus and hit the road. They traveled through Washington State, Los Angeles, and even Mexico. In 1967, Mary Brunner became pregnant by Manson and gave birth to a son named Valentine Michael, nicknamed Pooh Bear. I feel like Pooh Bear is a great nickname for a kid, but calling an adult man Pooh Bear? A little weird. Mary Brunner also had her own nicknames. Nicknames, aliases, was kind of the thing of the Manson family. Mary had her own nicknames. She was known as Mother Mary or Mary Manson. Now, Manson's presentation of himself was really Christ-like, at least to the people he met and wanted to impress. I think Manson liked to put on personas for different people. To some, he was a martyr. To some, he was a father figure. To some, he was a lover. Or, to some, he was a prophet. He was seen as so spiritual, he actually was hired as a consultant for a Hollywood movie on Jesus Christ. He preached against a materialistic outlook and the institution. According to those who knew him, Manson had a very dynamic personality. He was able to read a person and play them accordingly. If it was a leader they wanted, he'd give them it. If it was Jesus they wanted, he'd give them it. But underneath it all, Manson was obsessed with one singular thing. Himself. He had a large creative image of himself. To his family, he projected that he hated Hollywood and those in it, but he wanted that spotlight just as badly as anybody else. Charles Manson actually crossed paths with a lot of famous people in the California area, such as Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. He picked up family women Patricia Krinwinkle and Ella Jo Bailey when they were hitchhiking and brought them to his house for a few hours. He got back home following the morning to be greeted by Manson in his driveway. Inside Wilson's house were the rest of the Manson family, 12 people in total. So he just shows back up at his house and suddenly there are 12 hippies just crashing there. The number of people now staying in Dennis Wilson's house had doubled. They had racked up a bill of over $100,000, including a giant medical bill for the treatment of all of their gonorrhea. Wilson got really close to Manson. They were buds during this time. Wilson actually paid for studio time to record songs written and performed by Manson and introduced him to industry professionals. Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher, and Rudy Altobelli. Rudy owned a house which he later rented to Sharon Tate and her husband Roman Polanski. Finally, Wilson moved out of his rented home when the lease was expired, and later his landlord evicted the Manson family from that same house. Saying goodbye from his odd and short-lived friendship with Wilson, Manson and the family moved out to Spawn Ranch in August of 1968. Spawn Ranch used to be a movie set for Western productions, but the buildings had deteriorated by the late 1960s. During this time, the ranch was earning money by selling horseback rides through the nearby hills. Female family members did chores around the ranch and would have sex on Manson's orders with the blind 80-year-old owner of the ranch, George Spawn himself. Women also acted as seeing eyes for him. In exchange for the sex and general help, Spawn allowed Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free. All of that is just gross. It's just gross. Speaking of gross, here's a fun fact. 
Squeaky Fromm got her nickname because she squeaked when George pinched her thigh. Fun. Charles Watson was the next to join the family. Remember this guy. Charles Watson was from Texas, who quit college and moved to California to live the hippie lifestyle. George Spawn named him Tex because of his southern drawl, and from then on he would go as Tex Watson. Later on that year, Manson established the family at another location in Death Valley, where they occupied two other smaller ranches. Myers Ranch was owned by the grandmother of one of the girls in the family. Barker Ranch was owned by an elderly woman, Arlene Barker, who felt the need to help Manson after he presented himself as a musician in need of a place. Back over at Spawn Ranch, Manson and Tex Watson visit a friend in Topan... Topanga? Oh, Jesus Christ. Topanga Canyon. <laughs> they all sat there and listened to the recent double album by the Beatles. The White Album. Manson became obsessed with the Beatles. I mean, right on, man. They are a great band. But obsession is never a good thing, especially with a guy like Manson. During his formation of the family, Manson would always mention racial tensions between the African Americans and white Americans. This was a time he would gather everyone around the fire at Spawn Ranch and lecture them about an incoming race war. Let's call it what it is. Manson was a racist. His whole group of followers were racists too. And crazy, but that's neither here nor there. On a particularly cold night at Myra's ranch, the family gathered around a large fire, as they usually would, to listen to Manson preach. Manson explained that this race war he'd been predicting had also been predicted by the Beatles. The White Album's songs explained it all in a code just for Manson to hear. That the Manson family were a chosen group by the Beatles. These people were literally doing drugs all day, every day, so that's the only excuse I'll give them for feeding into all of this bullshit. In January of 1969, the family from Myers Ranch moved to a yellow home not far from their big base of Spawn Ranch. Manson called it the Yellow Submarine, which is a great Beatles song. He just needs to stop ruining the Beatles for everybody. In this house, the family prepared for the apocalypse, which Manson termed Helter Skelter. It's occurring to me that Charles Manson is incapable of coming up with any original ideas, as he's literally just taking the titles of Beatles songs and using them for something else. Talk about plagiarism. Okay, it isn't technically plagiarism because the Beatles never wrote about a race war, but you get my idea. The plan for Helter Skelter was this. The family would create an album of their own that would magically trigger the apocalypse. White people and black people would battle it out. African Americans would win, only to be ruled in the end by the Manson family. While all the fighting would go on, the Manson family would conveniently hide in a secret underground city until they could truly rule over everything. Yeah, that was the big plan. So, you remember Terry Melcher, right? One of the music executives who worked with the Beach Boys. Well, at the Yellow Submarine, the Manson family was working on the songs th for their world-changing album. Manson told the family that Melcher was coming to hear the material. But Melcher never came. Uninvited, Manson went to what he thought was the address of Terry Melcher on March 23rd of 1969. 
He knew it as Melcher's home, but it was Alto Belli's property, another music industry guy. Melcher had just previously lived there as a tenant. The present tenants of this property were Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski. As he was coming up the driveway, he was stalked by Sharak Hatami, a photographer who was Sharon Tate's friend. He was there to take pictures of Tate before her departure to Rome. He spotted Manson through the window and came out to ask him what he wanted. Manson told him he was looking for someone, but Hatami didn't know Melcher, so he told Manson to go around back and check the guest house. I'd like to just remind you all what Charles Manson looked like right then during that time. He had long scraggly hair, he was very thin, and he has these very dark, very big eyes that just kind of stare at you, you know, like a demon, like like the actual devil. He is terrifying. So I can't even imagine what it was like for Hatami and Sharon Tate to watch this guy just march around their property that they had never ever seen before. Anyways, Hatami and Sharon Tate waited as Manson went back to the guest house and soon returned without another word and left. But that same night, Manson went back to the property and again went to the guest house. This time, he spoke to Alto Belli himself, who knew Manson back from his aspiring musician days and hanging out with the Beach Boys. Manson asked where Melcher was, and Alto Belli was weirded out, understandably so, and wouldn't tell Manson where Melcher's new address was. Alto Belli lied and told Manson that Melcher had moved to somewhere in Malibu he didn't know the address of. Manson asked to meet with Alto Belli when he got back from his trip, and Alto Belli lied again that he'd be gone for a whole year. Manson left that night utterly dissatisfied and enraged. The next day, Rudy Altobelli flew with Sharon Tate to Rome. On that very flight, Tate allegedly asked him whether the creepy-looking guy had found him in the guest house. I hate to think that the slim and unlucky chance that Sharon Tate came face to face with Charles Manson was what sealed her fate in the very end. This closes off our part two of the Charles Manson trilogy. I had to dedicate three different episodes to these people because there is so much going on. All of the psychedelic drugs they were on, all of the alcohol, let's not mention the cult mentality going on. Charles Manson, although crazy, was a very intelligent person and that shouldn't be underestimated. He knew how to read people and how to make them bend to his will. He filled these people's lives with false prophecies, promises, and protection. Charles Manson formed a family of lost people. I think he saw himself in the young people he collected for his family. They were alone, vulnerable, and would follow Manson till the end of the line. Whatever it was that meant for them. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope your family experience is a lot more healthy than the Manson family experience. Episodes of The Bazaar come out every Friday, so turn on your notifications. Thank you so much again for joining us. I really appreciate you spending time with me. It's cool. We're buds. We get to hang out. And I would just like to leave you with a solid peace out, nerds. I hope you have a phenomenal weekend.